Hello, welcome to another episode of the Wounded Blue Hour. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, a retired police lieutenant and the author of A Cop's Life and the soon-to-be-released Rescuing 911, the fight for America's safety. I'm also the founder of the organization called The Wounded Blue, the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers, a nationwide charity. Thanks for joining me on another episode here. And before I uh, introduce our guest, because as you know, we always have a great guest here at the Wounded Blue Hour, remember that this program is brought to you by the Wounded Blue and also by our amazing sponsor, OfficerPrivacy.com. And it is a program that is all about the physical, emotional, spiritual health of the American law enforcement officer. So um, before we bring in our guest, we're going to have our, what I call our reality check. And our reality check is when I say the end of watch for the officers who died during the previous week. Now, uh, so far in, uh, since the January through April, um, more than 135 police officers have been shot in the line of duty. That's just shot. That doesn't count all of the assaults, all of the uh, stabbings, all of the um, being hit with objects, just shot. It's a startling number. And unfortunately, this week, we lost three more American law enforcement officers from uh, line of duty deaths. The first is Detective Jacob Bowe of the Rutherford County Sheriff's Office in Tennessee. Detective Jacob Bowe was killed in a vehicle crash on Armstrong Valley Road in Murfreesboro. He was a United States Marine Corps veteran, served with the Rutherford Sheriff's Office in the Narcotics Division for six years. Detective Jacob Bowe, Rutherford County Sheriff's Office, Tennessee. End of watch, Sunday, May 7th, 2023. Deputy Sheriff Katie Lysing of the St. Croix County Sheriff's Office in Wisconsin. Deputy Sheriff Katie Lysing was shot and killed while investigating a single vehicle crash involving a drunk driver near the intersection of Route 128 and County Road G south of Glenwood City. She had been speaking with the driver for approximately eight minutes and requested that he consent to field sobriety tests. The man suddenly produced a handgun and opened fire on Deputy Lysing. Despite being mortally wounded, she returned fire but did not strike the subject. The man ran into the nearby woods where he committed suicide approximately one hour later after deputies spotted him. Detective, or excuse me, Deputy Leasing had served with the St. Croix County Sheriff's Office for one year, previously served with the Pennington County Sheriff's Office in Dakota for two years. Deputy Sheriff Katie Leising, St. Croix County Sheriff's Office, Wisconsin. End of watch, Saturday, May 6, 2023. And then Police Officer Robert Schisler of the Deptford Township Police Department in New Jersey. Police Officer Robert Schisler succumbed to complications of a gunshot wound sustained on March 10, 2023, while struggling with a suspect following a foot pursuit. 
He had conducted a subject stop on a man on Delcy Drive. The man fled on foot during the encounter, and Officer Schistler chased him to Doman Avenue, where a struggle ensued between the two. The man produced a handgun and shot Officer Schistler in the leg. Despite being wounded, Officer Schistler returned fire and killed the subject. Officer Schistler was taken to University Medical University of Pennsylvania Hospital, where he underwent multiple surgeries. He succumbed to complications of the gunshot wound on May 7, 2023, without ever having been released from the hospital. Officer Schistler served the Deptford Township Police for four years. His father and brother also serve in law enforcement. Police Officer Robert Schistler, Deptford Township Police Department, New Jersey. End of watch, Sunday, May 7th. 2023. We are coming up on National Police Week. If you are unfamiliar with it, it uh, was put into place by uh, President John F. Kennedy. And it is a commemoration week where those who have lost their lives in the line of duty are honored in Washington, D.C. There is an amazing monument there, a memorial wall that bears the names of every single police officer who has been uh, lost their life in the line of duty. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful yet somber um, place to be. I've been there almost every year, and I can't tell you what it feels like to watch thousands upon thousands of American law enforcement officers in their full dress uniforms at the candlelight vigil for their brothers and sisters. It is a, it is a uh, incredible sight. It is a very reflective time. If you've never been there, I urge you to go the next time that you visit Washington, D.C., the National Law Enforcement Officer Memorial in downtown Washington, D.C. I will be there. And if you are going to be there, please connect with me while I am there. Randy at thewoundedblue.org is my email. So let's bring in our guest. He has appeared on this show before, and he has uh, just come out with a new film. Now, uh, <laughs> he's got an amazing background, 23 and a half years as a Las Vegas police officer retiring as a sergeant, where he held many positions within the agency. And then turn to filmmaking. Jason Harney is my guest today. Jason, thank you so much for joining me. Great to uh, be with you yet again, Randy. So in, um, in uh, preparation for this, this interview, I want the viewers and the listeners to know that Jason and I are, besides being uh, compatriots, uh, we are also friends. And uh, I can't tell you how impressed I am with his talent as a filmmaker, literally reinventing himself after his, uh, after his retirement. Although, as we'll talk about, this has always been a passion of yours. But you recently came out with a new film. And I really want to talk about that because it, it can reverberate throughout the police community. Jason, let's get into a little bit of your background. Um, you come from a police family. And then you started very, very young as a cop. Let's talk about that. 
Yeah, well, my uh, father, Steve Harney, he's a uh, retired uh, uh, lieutenant from the Nevada Highway Patrol. He did 32 years and retired around 2004. So, you know, growing up in a law enforcement family, I, I certainly had a, a really good idea of what to expect. And there's no question that uh, his influence had a direct impact on my career choice. So let's talk about your career, um, your career with Metro. Well, uh, yeah, I, I did 23 and a half years, as you know. Um, I did start uh, young as a, as a police cadet and, and worked in a variety of assignments. I mean, we worked for a department, what, Randy, that had 5,800 employees, at least at the time, was the seventh largest at the, in the country at that time. So uh, with that comes a lot of opportunity to move around and, and kind of experience different areas of police work. Uh, you know, primarily I worked in, in uh, patrol as a field training officer. Um, but my passion, of course, was training. And as you know, I, I worked a total of six years in our police academy um, and, you know, did a variety of assignments and detective work, uh, you know, downtown bike patrol. Uh, I was a field training sergeant, academy sergeant. But generally speaking, my passions relied were around training and defensive tactics during my entire career, uh, use of force. Uh, writing use of force policy and understanding what the uh, what it takes to have a good uh, solid outcome in a use of force scenario, and that was really my uh, focus during the majority of my career. And use of force, of course, is probably one of the least understood aspects of law enforcement, and it is also the uh, the part of law enforcement that creates the most controversy. Um, we have seen we have seen this nation torn apart uh, by um, police uses of force that have gone awry, and we have we have uh, seen literally um, just just thousands of hours of media attention um, being pointed at. American law enforcement officers since the, especially since the advent of the video and the cell phone, um, it's literally police use of force has um, created a, a, an incredible impact on this nation and on policing. So to that end, you, you know, your, your, your career really revolved much around the training aspects, but what about You've you've morphed into a new a new uh, identity, if you will, as a filmmaker. How did that transition take place? Well, you know, Randy it was always a plan. You know, one of the one of the funny things about you know us retirees a lot of times is uh, everyone will say, "Well, when I retire, I'm going to golf, I'm going to fish, and I'm going to hunt." And, and typically we hear that all the time, but you know, I think when you retire, you realize that only lasts about six months and then you're like, well, what, I'm, what am I gonna do now? Uh, especially if you retire at an age that allows you to have uh, a, a second career, a good chunk of time in your life where, where you are, are still uh, not only able to work, but you have certain passions in life that you know, lead you down a path that is completely different than policing. You know, for me, that was always the plan. Uh, just being that, you know, typical cinephile, the guy that really loves movies and how they're made since a very young age, that was really one of my goals was 
to learn everything I could about filmmaking. And uh, you probably remember our video production unit, uh, uh, Don Bell and Shelley Vorse, uh, at the time in the late 1990s. Their office was in the same building as the police academy where I worked. And so uh, guess what I did on a lot of my off time? I was kind of like their understudy and, and they taught me everything from how a camera works uh, on a technical level, how to light a scene, and then how to move a, something you've shot into post-production. And after uh, getting a lot of that, uh, uh, you know, work with them kind of on the job doing police related projects for training, uh, I kind of started to feel more comfortable with the process and opened up my own company and was doing it on a part-time basis, doing commercials and uh, training videos and corporate work for, uh, you know, for projects that I could still do a full-time job as a, as a police sergeant, uh, but, you know, still continue to hone my craft, always with the idea that when I retired, uh, I would do it full time, which I'm doing now. Well, talk about a plan coming together. <laughs> it's sure. pretty. It's pretty amazing. Now, how many films have you produced um, in your career now? Well, uh, since being retired, I have produced a, a total of six films, and I've got a seventh on the way, as you know. Um, I, I tend to do other projects for for people, such as your organization, The Wounded Blue, as well. But my focus is clearly on making feature films in the documentary space. Why is that? Well, you know, when you're a police officer uh, for, for multiple decades uh, and you transition into this filmmaking world, you find that the subject matter there allows you to have a lot of things to say. And, and given that my uh, background was in training, was in police use of force and defensive tactics, that's really what led to the current film. But, you know, working with you and, uh, and the film that we made, The Wounded Blue, back in 2019, uh, also opened eyes to a whole nother uh, issue and cause within, you know, our, our profession. Uh, something that, as we know, is uh, not only shocking and startling, but uh, very sad. So this is a great time for me to plug the film. For those of you who are watching this on video or listening to it on radio, I urge you to go to Amazon.com and put in the words, The Wounded Blue. You will see a documentary film, a full documentary film that, um, that was directed, that was written and produced by Jason Harney. And it is very, very powerful. It is startling to show the realities of how law enforcement officers are treated once they become injured or disabled. So I urge you to take a look at that film. It, it will startle you, I'll tell you right now, bring your tissues, you're gonna need them. And we also have on YouTube, a six part series uh, that, uh, that was also done by Jason Harney. And it's, once again, it's, uh, these are shorter, shorter um, uh, programs, but very, very powerful. And, uh, and, and my, my hat is off to Jason for taking the interest and, and the time to produce what is really an impactful documentary film. But let's talk about, let's talk about your new one. Um, Wristlock is, has just been released and you are already winning accolades and awards for this film. Let's talk about, let's talk about Wristlock. 
Well, the film is called Wrist Lock, the uh, martial arts influence on police use of force. And it's based off two, two major themes. The first is that every defensive tactics technique that law enforcement is taught in any training academy or any in-service uh, realm within police training uh, was derived from the martial arts. And so we, we thought about this idea that if martial artists are really good at what they do, why is that? Well, we know because they're passionate about the topic, they train every day, uh, they are dedicated, and it's a lifelong lifestyle choice to train in the martial arts. Uh, that's how you achieve that, that level of master, right? Well, police officers typically don't do that. Your average cop in, in this country will get some defensive tactics training in their police academy that will lay the foundation for things like self-defense, arrest and control, baton work, handcuffing, etc. But in most agencies, because the states don't require any recertification training, then uh, they're on their own for the rest of their career. So five, 10, 15 years down the road, they have received no recertification training in these important techniques that they are quite literally using every day uh, when they are working in their shift. So that's a problem, obviously, because you could certainly make the argument that a lot of the uh, media scrutinized incidents that we happen to get from time to time that, that seem to really outrage certain parts of our public, uh, there's your answer as to why a lot of those things happen because the cops are not being trained effectively throughout their careers if they ever were foundationally in the beginning. So that's one big part of the film and, and where we go with it. This is such an, a critical component and, and it just, it's hard to conceive that a, that a police officer, once they get out of the academy, um, can receive basically minimal, minimal training in, in, to, in a topic that, and a skill that can literally save their life. So I know that, that every state has different what they call uh, requirements, training requirements. In Nevada, we have something called POST, the Police Officer Standards and Training, which, which requires a certain amount, uh, I believe it's 24 hours, of recertification training in various, various topics, including, um, I believe, that use of force is in there. But not all states require that, do they, Jason? They don't, and, and there lies the problem because in, in, in my opinion and, and, and the group of experts that we put together for this film, uh, a use of, to have a successful use of force outcome, there needs to be, there are three important factors in that outcome. The first is gonna be defensive tactics proficiency. In other words, if your proficiency is low, then the odds that you'll be able to have the muscle memory and the ability to utilize a technique that you might have learned five or 10 years ago, but have had no practice since, it's not going to come out when you're in an actual situation and the stresses that are involved in that scenario. Number two, physical fitness. Yet another topic that we talk about all the time. If, if uh, you might have been in the best shape of your life in your, your police academy at whatever age you went through that academy, but again, five, 10, 15 years down the road, a lot of cops gain weight and, and they're not as physically fit as they were when they were younger. No department in this country 
puts police officers through an annual physical fitness test. So there is no hoop to jump through throughout your career to remain physically fit. And yet, if you're not physically fit, there is no way you can expect to be successful in the use of force encounter consistently. And then the third is something you talk about all the time, mental health. If your mental health is compromised, I think you can make a strong argument that your ability to make a proper use of force decision, again, under stress, is going to likely lead to an unsuccessful outcome because of that. And I would even take it a step further and say that a lot of the police brutality cases that we see nationwide could easily be blamed on the fact that that officer's mental health is compromised and that they are either underreacting to a scenario or they're overreacting to it. But all three of those factors, proficiency, uh, physical fitness and mental health need to be present in order for an officer to be successful in a use of force uh, situation. We are just now in the law enforcement profession starting at, we're like at, at the, the very lowest levels of seeing a recognition about some of these issues, especially about mental health. I think we've, we've heard more about emotional and mental health for law enforcement uh, in, the last, in the last three or four years than we have in, in, in the last several decades combined. So now we're finally starting to see some uh, awareness and also, you know, departments taking some steps to combat, you know, some of the, the mental health issues that, uh, that arise from, from a protracted law enforcement career. Uh, but we're, we haven't really seen much of a change in the other two prongs of this, of this uh, dynamic. You know, we're, we don't see a, a, a big push for physical fitness, and we don't see. So, you know, what do you what do you attribute that to? Well, in our current climate, as we know, recruiting is a huge issue. And, and uh, I, I think I passed an article on to you from the New York Post about a month or two months ago in which their uh, the NYPD's training declared that they were going to essentially get rid of their uh, uh, physical fitness test for new hires because they're trying to increase the pool. And in and, and, and their mind, they're thinking, well, we don't need to have a, a new employee who's about to enter a police academy, run a 1.5 mile run for time uh, with the idea that, you know, uh, we don't chase suspects for a mile and a half. Well, anybody who understands the physical fitness side of police work also understands that uh, the reason you take a 1.5 mile run test has nothing to do with the fact that someday you might chase a suspect for a mile and a half, but rather it is because it is a test of your current cardiovascular fitness. And if you start, say, with poor cardiovascular fitness at the beginning of your uh, police career and with all of the stresses that a police officer incurs during, you know, those 5, 10, 15 years with the poor diet and, you know, the lack of physical activity and all of the things that cause cops to uh, gain weight. We, we do have an obesity epidemic, just like the regular human population does. You know, we know cops aren't superhuman. We're, we're going to suffer all of the same effects that general society does, unfortunately. But we have a, 
a very important job to do and one that takes an incredible amount of skill, an incredible amount of compassion. And in order to be able to be successful at that, you have to have a high level of physical fitness from the start and you must maintain it throughout your career. And one of the things that always bothers me is that when we talk about mental health, we talk about a lot of remedies, but we never talk about the root cause. And there's no way somebody can tell me that as a police officer that you are going to have a, a high level of mental health if you're 50 pounds overweight and your diet and nutrition is poor, you're not sleeping, and, and, and you have all of the other stresses that come with just being human. We have to do something about that if we want to solve these mental health issues. All right, we have to take a quick break, and I will be right back with Jason. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix RX nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code out loud at cofixrx.com. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Out loud. We are fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative think. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said, Keep your face always toward the sunshine, and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. One Nation Coffee. One Nation Coffee. Patriotic, uh, veteran-owned, uh, very, very good coffee. I w actually went down and visited their roasting facility and met with the folks down there, uh, John and his crew, and they are amazing people. The coffee is delicious. You order it online, they bring it right to your house. You can get the ground coffee, you can get beans. I like to grind my own. They've got uh, also got these, uh, you know, the, the containers that you put in your 
Kerrig or whatever that thing is called. So um, One Nation Coffee. Go to OneNationCoffee.com. Order your coffee, and uh, you'll get great coffee, and you'll be supporting uh, a patriotic company that supports the Wounded Blue. So uh, go to OneNationCoffee.com. Every advertiser that um, we endorse here at the Wounded Blue Hour is uh, has something to do with the safety of our of our cops. And OfficerPrivacy.com is one of the companies that I truly appreciate, I endorse, and uh, can speak about um, without any hesitation. Now, what is Officer Privacy? Dot com do well what they do is they safeguard your information your private information that is so accessible on the internet um when when the the boss of uh officerprivacy.com came to me and told me about what he is doing i was really i i, I had no idea how easy it was to find out where i lived until he showed me and that he found all kinds of information about me that I don't really want people to know. We all know that 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 these these um, some of these stalkers really know how to utilize the internet for nefarious purposes. So you want to give yourself and you want to give your family every possible safety advantage. Now, OfficerPrivacy.com only employs uh, current and former police officers to actually scrub your information off of the internet. So these are all highly trusted people. So um, I urge you, go to officerprivacy.com. See what they do. They're not, it's not expensive. It's, it's great peace of mind. And uh, it's, it's, I, I believe it's a, it's a necessity for any active duty police officer. And I'm telling you, we retired guys. We put a lot of bad guys away. I don't want them getting access to where I live. So go to officerprivacy.com. Sign up today. Now, also, the Wounded Blue. I want to talk about the Wounded Blue for a minute. The Wounded Blue is the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers, a nationwide charity. It, it has a team made up of all cops who have been shot and stabbed and beaten and run over and faced faced a lot of uh, indignities, a lot of injustice, and still want to serve. They want to serve their brothers and sisters who have faced similar issues. Now, Wounded Blue recognizes all injuries, whether those injuries are physical or emotional and psychological. Um, the, the team is caring. They are skilled. We have amazing resources, and we're doing amazing work. We've helped more than 15,000 police officers in the last four years. So go to thewoundedblue.org. See who we are. See what we do. Donate if you have the ability to do that. We are strictly a volunteer charity, and we re re uh, require uh, funds from people that care about their law enforcement. Now, if you are a cop, or you have been a cop, 
The third annual National Law Enforcement Survival Summit is coming up September 26th through the 29th here in Las Vegas, Nevada. This is the most incredible training you will ever get. Every aspect of surviving a law enforcement career, physically, tactically, emotionally, psychologically, um, spiritually, fiscally, relationships, I mean, you name it. This is, this is uh, must-attend training. It's inexpensive. It's $295 for four days, and it will be held at the Ahern Hotel here in Las Vegas, a great boutique hotel. The rooms are inexpensive for this event. And I urge you, go to thewoundedblue.org. Scroll down, view the um, announcement, and register right now. I urge you, if you are a cop, to, to look at this training and bring your spouse. When you're suffering, they're suffering as well. So go to thewoundedblue.org and go to the register button of that, of that portion of the website. So let's bring Jason back. Jason, you hit on something that um, is really important that we, that we uh, examine a little further. And that is, you said, and this is 100% accurate, that a police officer is more inclined to use deadly force or the inappropriate force if they are not skilled in defensive tactics or and or um, are suffering from the uh, um, you know the fatigue which often accompanies a police job as well as the um, the diet and exercise portion of, of of fitness. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Sure. Well, you know, in the film, um, somebody that you know uh, really well, John Gentile, uh, he's a, a, a martial artist. Uh, we call him the master martial artist. He's been in it for over 40 years. And he takes the audience on a journey where we go and across the country, around the country, and visit uh, different people who kind of have the skill set of being a high-level martial artist, but were also a retired police officer and trainer. And in doing so, we talked to a number of different people that all brought forth these different ideas that we've now talked about and that thought process that, you know, you do have to maintain your skill set that you arrive in theory with the day you uh, are on your first shift from the police academy. You have to maintain that for, you know, an entire 20 or 30 year career. And if you do not, you know, generally speaking, what's going to end up happening is, you know, the old saying, if, if, if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. And, and then you need it one day. You're in this situation because we always say, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the road, you, you may avoid that critical incident, but then it's going to happen. You know, I mean, think about the situation that happened the other day now in Texas where you have a police officer who I'm certain when he arrived on the call at that mall handling whatever he was sent to handle, could have just been a report call or petty larceny, didn't expect that within minutes he was going to hear uh, semi-automatic weapons fire and have to run toward the sound of that and take out uh, an armed mass shooter. And yet he was put in that situation and, and he was clearly prepared for it. Uh, with both his skills, his fitness, and his, uh, his mental health. He, he did the job. But the question is, can every police officer honestly say they're prepared for that moment that could happen to anyone at any time? 
And that's really what this film is about. So, you know, you'll see John meet with a group of different martial artists who represent judo, wrestling, uh, Thai boxing, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, etc. All of the arts of which police work borrows from for the techniques that we teach to all of law enforcement. And we try to educate the audience, a mainstream audience, not just police officers, the importance of training on a regular basis in order to perform these techniques at the highest level possible when you actually need them. You know, I think it's this is really a, a, an important topic for for not just law enforcement officers to view this film, but also civilians to view it because it will give them a much greater understanding of the complexities of the job and the complexities of the decision-making in use of force. Uh, you know, one can't help but wonder, um, you know, how our country would have fared had there been different um, uh, different uses of force in some of the most high-profile uh, encounters in our, in our nation, and uh, you know that that literally have led to a tear in the fabric of our country, and has and has affected law enforcement in so very many ways. Now, you touched on something that I want to I want to talk about a little more in depth. Um, we are facing a recruitment crisis for law enforcement. I mean, also for military, but uh, that's that's a much that's a much broader topic. But for law enforcement, we are facing a double pronged, real crisis, and that is retention of officers. We've never seen so many people retiring at the very moment that they're eligible or even just resigning before they are eligible to retire. So we have these gaps, plus you have the insanity of the defunding movement. Uh, that, that Even that just mentioning that kind of gets my blood pressure going. So you, 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 have, you have like the perfect storm of the degradation of law enforcement. And then... Who wants to be a police officer anymore, Jason? You all, all we see is negativity shown by the media. We see negativity by the leadership of, of at every level of this country. And we also see the loss of protections to safeguard law enforcement officers legally. So now we have a, a, a crisis of even getting qualified applicants to be interested in joining law enforcement. And as you said, New York, in order to try and fill that void, has done something which I, it's unconscionable, but they have ended their physical fitness requirements, which in essence, that means that they have lowered their standards in order to put people into uniform. We're not seeing that just in New York, are we? No, it's it's something. I mean, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures, and and you know, a lot of a lot of times, it, you know, Randy, it's a numbers game. So, you know, we have to have police officers on the street, and so your administrators who are making those types of decisions are looking at one thing: how many butts seats in the police academy, and and how long is it going to take them to to be trained and, and out in the street. And we know that that is uh, an absolute recipe for disaster when you have that kind of mentality, because 
you know, we want quality candidates. And when you get, you know, 10,000 candidates that walk through a door and, and you know that uh, maybe 50 of them will actually pass your current standards when you look at things such as the background, the psychological, the polygraph, the written test and the physical test, you're going to look to cut corners to increase that number from, say, 50 to 100. And if you tell a police administrator, well, uh, a lot of a lot of, uh, you know, of these candidates coming through the door are not able to do the sit ups. They're not able to do the push ups. They're not able to do the one point five mile run. Uh, it's really easy for somebody sitting in a chair, you know, at the, at the top of an office building to say, you know what? Um, let's just get, let's just do away with the test and we'll increase our recruitment numbers and have a better shot of filling our academy. That's the mentality today. And, and I think we both know what that's going to lead to. Yeah, we absolutely do know. I mean, you know, uh, history has a habit of repeating itself. And I look back at some of the greatest police corruption scandals in history and I, there's always a common denominator, and that common denominator is the lowering of standards in order to hire. And um, you know we're seeing we're seeing across the nation these desperate police agencies trying to trying to shore up their their numbers, and um, and we're seeing the diminishment of standards. We're seeing in some cases background checks that are. Uh, where they're making allowances for behaviors that a few years ago would have been a, an instant disqualifier. So if you have, if you're lowering your standards both for fitness and then you're lowering your standards for behaviors, we're going to be we're going to we're going to be in, in a position where there we're going to see more misconduct and more corruption, which will then be the self-fulfilling prophecy that the, that the left is actually, you know, desirous of. Then point their fingers and said, you see? You see what I mean? Those cops are corrupt. Those cops' misconduct, it's, this, they're, the, they're the enemy. And yet we're seeing from our, our national leadership and, and our law enforcement leadership a run towards the cliff. And, and I don't know, I, I'm not seeing much on the horizon that gives me any hope that we're going to see any, any changes. Now, when you were doing wrist lock and you're going around the country talking to some of the, you know, the most, uh, uh, the, the experts in the, in the field of fitness and nutrition and, and what it really means to, to, to be a healthy cop. Are you seeing anything that is giving you any hope? You know, uh, at the level of, of people we spoke to, yes. I mean, we're talking about, we, we spoke with Betsy Brantner-Smith, who you know really well, spokesperson for the National Police Association and, and a legendary police trainer in her own right, and, and speaks about these topics we're talking about right now all the time. She's one of the experts in the film, and, and, and certainly, sees all of the things that we are seeing and that, you know, when it comes to recruitment, they are cutting corners, they are lowering standards, and that is going to give us a cop that is probably not what we're looking for, generally speaking, 
from the very beginning of their career. But of course, we're talking about our film here that establishes that we're not taking care of cops during their career either. We're not putting an emphasis on training, physical fitness, and mental health. Why? Typically because of money. Money issues is, is, tip, is what an administrator would normally say. I mean, we talk about a, a concept in the film that's called the street athlete. And, and essentially what that means is, you know, you have a person, say, like LeBron James, you know, Los Angeles Lakers NBA star who famously spends a million dollars per year on his body to ensure that he can handle the rigors of a long NBA season. But at the end of the day, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to LeBron? He loses a basketball game. But what's the worst thing that happens to a police officer? I think we know what the answer to that is. And, and yet we put no emphasis, no time, no money into ensuring a cop remains proficient, fit, and, and, and has, uh, you know, a high level of mental health throughout their careers. We just kind of, you know, you know, as Dr. John Scheinberg says in our film, we, we allow uh, this natural resource, this, this police officer that we have recruited to essentially be destroyed over a period of 20 or 30 years. And then when they're done, hey, thanks for playing. You know, I hope you took care of yourself so you maybe can spend a few years in retirement, uh, you know, w without having some type of severe illness. Um, it, it really is, it's sad. And I know that's why you created the Wounded Blue to address these issues and to ensure that cops get uh, the treatment that they deserve throughout their careers. And it all starts with that idea of wellness. And, and with 18,000 plus agencies in this country, we're simply just not getting it done. You know, um, there's a startling statistic that I want to bring forth and that is um, the average age that a police officer dies uh, as opposed to you know, the, the general public. Enlighten us on that one. Yeah, the average police officer dies uh, at 57 years old in this country. And that is a 22 year disparity with the general population. That is as startling a statistic as I've ever heard when it comes to the health and wellness of police officers. And we know that there are a variety of reasons why that happens. And that's what we've looked to explore in this film by talking, talking with Dr. John Scheinberg, who is a, uh, a cardiologist who specializes in treating first responders in Austin, Texas. And he's also a reserve police lieutenant for the Austin Police Department. And, and he was a wealth of information. And as I told you before, I could have made an entire film just about uh, what he talked with us about, but it, it's a bigger picture scenario here. At the end of the day, we're not training cops well enough. We're not giving them the tools to be physically fit throughout their careers, and we're not helping them maintain their mental health with given all of the things that they see and do during a career. Uh, granted, these things affect each of us differently. We're all wired differently. Uh, we all see different things. It depends on what police department you work for. Uh, it will depend on how often you see those things. The department that you and I work for, as you know, in a typical shift, we might see, you know, three or four critical incidents uh, or traumatic incidents in one shift, you know? Uh, and, and, and so my question is, what are the bigger agencies doing to help ensure that our cops are fit and, and able to make these types of decisions throughout a long law enforcement career? Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm. Uh, there are so, there are some. Like um, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, 
uh, under the leadership of the new sheriff, uh, um, uh, it has has made a vow to create a wellness bureau that does nothing but uh, try to institute um, uh, plans to address these issues. And so that's a step in the right direction. But I don't know that, that many police agencies have stepped up to the plate to uh, uh, to take on because this this is a big this is a big bite, and I haven't seen a whole lot of other police agencies um, making that making those efforts. And yet, you know, we're literally talking about the lives of our cops. Uh, you know, we're I, at the beginning of the show. I read the end of watch for officers who have lost their lives in the line of duty, but we're seeing vast numbers of police officers lose their careers due to injuries and also medical issues. And, and, and many of these medical issues and these injuries could be alleviated with, with a, an adherence to um, some of the concepts that you bring forth in this, in this film, Wrist Lock. Uh, but um, it, it really, it really comes down to the individual officer, doesn't it? At the end of the day, the commitment that they have. You know, Randy, that that is a great question and debate that we have had. Now, my my uh, the, the person that is the main subject of this film, John Gentile, I think he kind of skews more toward the idea that yes, it, it should come from the the officer, meaning that they should seek out their own training. Uh, you know, and and I, as a police trainer can't necessarily get on board with that. And here's why, because we have to have consistency. Consistency, not just amongst one police department and all of its officers, but consistency across all of law enforcement. So I give you an example. When we talked with Tracy Leverett, she's a retired uh, Jacksonville Sheriff's Office uh, police trainer, worked for 15 years in their police academy. Um, she's a blue belt Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and, and she is a, a very big part of our film, Wrist Lock. Um, in, in looking at her department, the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, they hired her Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu instructor to come into their police academy and teach three days per week. And then in what was kind of deemed groundbreaking, when they graduate the police academy, they not only get their badge, but they also get a blue belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at the graduation ceremony. Interesting. And I'm thinking in my, yeah, I'm thinking to myself, that's great. But what about the other 18,000 police agencies in this country? What are they getting? So you don't see the consistency. What we found in the in shooting this film and talking to everybody from US former uh, UFC light heavyweight champion and Hall of Famer Forrest Griffin, who was a police officer in Athens, Georgia for four years before he became the fighter that we know, to Tony Blauer, who, who is the uh, founder of the Spear System and has been in police self-defense for 40 years. Everybody had that consistent message in that Sure, it does have to come from yourself, and it should. You should have the passion for your job uh, enough so that you want to continually improve yourself. But shouldn't police agencies have standards as well? Shouldn't we be running police officers through the same test they had to pass to get their badge in the police academy for physical fitness each year, just like the military does? And shouldn't every police department and state post require a mandatory amount of hourly training, uh, you know, as you talked about, our department requires 24. 
per, per year, uh, 16 of that is in defensive tactics. Now, so that's four hours per quarter. That's Las Vegas Metro going above and beyond what the standard actually is. But most departments don't have any of that. They don't require anything. And I think that they should. Because if you're going to ask a police officer to go out and put themselves in these situations where they have to react with a reasonable amount of force, and it has to look perfect on video, which it never is going to with the advent <laughs> of cell phones, um, wouldn't you be able to argue that if police agencies are not mandating this type of training, that they're setting their cops up for failure and they know it? That's a that's a really really strong point that I could not agree with more. You know, there are some agencies uh, that I know of that allow their officers time during their shift to uh, to actually you know do physical fitness exercises, and I think that there have been a couple studies which have revealed that the, that an agency an agency that does that that encourages not mandatory but encourages it. Uh, that that gives them the time and gives them the encouragement to um, to work out during the shift actually sees results on a fiscal level because there's less on-duty injuries and there is less sick time being utilized. Did you find that when you were uh, doing this film? Well, there are studies available that indicate uh, in the corporate world, uh, which is comparable because we're just talking about employees here, um, that yes, you're going to see a significant uh, drop in sick time used. You're going to see a significant drop in injuries. But I, I, I tend to look at the bigger picture here, and it goes back to that statistic that we talked about where we have a 22-year disparity in our life expectancy within the law enforcement profession. To me, that that really, you know, hit me at the core when Dr. Scheinberg told us that when we were doing his segment for Rislock. And, and, and of course, it's highlighted in the film. And it, to me, it's not just about the career, Randy. That's important, but it's also about setting up the police officer for retirement as well so that you live a long life and can enjoy the fruits of your labor, which we don't see often enough, particularly if the average is only 57 years old. Uh, if you do 25 or 30 years, that doesn't leave you a whole long, does it? No, it sure doesn't. And th this topic is one that is really very, very important. How can people view your film? I mean, so you, it, it got it, it recently was awarded several awards, did it? Was it not? Yeah, we, uh, we were uh, really happy. Uh, the uh, uh, Top Indie Film Awards gave us uh, Best Documentary Film, Best Message, and, and Best Film Editing. And, and we uh, got into a number of film festivals, and, and uh, it, it's played really well. And, and, you know, one of the things that I've told a lot of people is that it, it is really not a film, believe it or not, directed at police officers, because at the end of the day, it's a harsh critique on our profession particularly how training is, is uh, you know, done in, in, within the profession, how inconsistent it is and how little there is in certain agencies. You know, we always talk about, you know, if you're going to have a surgeon is going to perform some type of uh, procedure on you, you'd want them to be up on all of the latest medical techniques as it relates to that particular surgery and not find out that the last time they had any education was 20 years ago when they went through medical school. Well, for a police officer, it's exactly the same thing. If you're not 
being trained by your agency in the techniques that are necessary for you to use both survive and perform at a high level in a use of force scenario, then like we said before, I, I feel like they're setting you up for failure. But the film, it is available uh, all over. You can uh, watch it on uh, Amazon, iTunes, uh, Microsoft Store, uh, Google Play. Uh, we just put it up on Plex. It's on Tubi, so you can watch it free with ads. So it is, it's widely available. Um, if you hit up our website, lightningdigitalentertainment.com, there's a wrist lock site there and you can uh, take a look at all the platforms it's available on. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time, Jason, to appear here once again on, uh, on the show. And uh, I heartily recommend uh, all of our viewers check out wrist lock. It'll open your eyes. You'll also see some, uh, some really amazing people that are being featured in Jason's film. And, uh, uh, Jason, you're also available uh, for special projects in film. If uh, if individuals who you know need a documentary done, you're you're also available for that. Correct? Absolutely. And yes, you can find me uh, on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter. My handle's at Jason Harney seventy two. And uh, yeah, as my as I said, my uh, website lightningdigitalentertainment.com has my contact info. So. Always uh, happy to talk with anybody about a, a project that they'd like to do. I mean, that's typically uh, how I work. And, and you know, I, I don't think it's any kind of secret, but most of my films are all going to be police related. I feel like there's a lot of stories that need to be told that is are not being told by the mainstream media or they're being told with a special kind of spin. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's really why I, I, that's where my passion lies. I want the true stories of our cops uh, to be out there and, and accessible for people to learn what it's really like in these different situations. And, and like you said earlier, the complexities of the job and everything that we have to deal with. Well, once again, Jason, thanks for joining me today. We've run out of time. Uh, thank you for, for uh, uh, the viewers and the listeners for taking the time to listen to the Wounded Blue Hour. Please go to thewoundedblue.org, see who we are, see what we do, donate if you can. And if you are a law enforcement officer or have been, um, think about coming to the third annual National Law Enforcement Survival Summit. Go to thewoundedblue.org and read all about it and register there. I'm your host, Randy Sutton. Stay safe. See you soon.